There's a chance for Mule and Burroughs. They score! And the Mules score! Scores! Three in a row for the Mules! Duke has to put it up at the buzzer! It's good! And the Mules win it! Coming to you from Allentown, Pennsylvania, welcome to the Mule and Mules podcast. Each episode, we'll talk to the coaches, staff, athletes, and alumni who make up the Muhlenberg Athletics family and are proud to call themselves Mules. And our guest this week is Kevin Hopkins, head men's basketball coach at Muhlenberg College. Coach Hopkins is a 2008 graduate of Amherst College in Massachusetts, where he contributed to two Division III national championships, one as a player in 2007 and one as an assistant coach in 2013. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Nice, nice. So uh, you're uh, in your fourth year at, at Muhlenberg, and um, what we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk some basketball, but we're going to talk mostly about some of the stuff that you've done to, to make your team successful that, that don't involve picks or shooting or, or anything like that. More, uh, it's a performance model. So I uh, hate to remind you of this, but your, your first year, you went 11 and 14, and your second year, 12 and 13. Last year, really big turnaround, 19 and 8, made the Centennial Conference playoffs, took the top-ranked team in the country down to the final shot of the game in the conference semifinals. You know, and a lot of that comes from obviously having talented players, but a lot of that comes from getting the most out of them and allowing them to perform their best. And, and so um, we're going to talk about this performance model. It's called CERT that's been developed by the head of the Muhlenberg Counseling Center, uh, Tim Silvestri, a former Mule athlete, class of 92. And, and, and just talk about a little bit about how you got involved with Tim and, and how you decided that this would be a good thing for your team. Yeah, for sure. I think it was, you know, last year when I first ran into Tim, I think it was just in the hallway, actually, and we started talking a little bit. And I was a psychology major in undergrad at Amherst College. Um, so obviously the psychology piece of coaching has always resonated with me. Um, and when I started talking to Tim, um, he shared a little bit about this performance model, the CERT model that he had been developing over the last 15, 20 years, something like that. And a lot of the ideas really resonated with me. You know, at first it was kind of like he presented these ideas and then I had a little bit of pushback, had to think about it for a little while, um, but eventually ended up that his model kind of connected the dots for me on a lot of the stuff philosophically that I believed as a coach. Um, so it's been great to see over the past year, you know, last, last year I was kind of using it on my own and used it with the guys a little bit, but wasn't really explicit with it. And then, you know, in the middle of the pandemic with COVID and everything, we've been meeting with our team, with Tim and his team, and kind of going through it on a little bit more of an individual basis and being a little bit more explicit with guys so that, you know, they can kind of use this model, not just for basketball, but they can use it in their own lives for other things they want to accomplish. Um, whether that's academically, job-wise, et cetera. The thing I really like is that it applies across a lot of different domains and can be used in different capacities, not just hoops. Yeah, and actually at, at Muhlenberg uh, on, on Monday, we're going to have a staff development day, and, and one of the panels is going to be on, on this uh, CERT model um, and, and how it can be applied to, to goals and aspirations for anybody, and it, it's not just a basketball thing. So I guess basketball is like life or is life like basketball? Take your pick. I think it goes back and forth. Depends on the day. All right. So let's talk about these, these four components, C-E-R-T. The C is commit to commitment. And, and what does that mean? And how do you use that um, 
you know, with your team? For us, you know, Tim's talked about committing a commitment is kind of a time variable of, you know, anybody that's accomplished anything at a high level has taken a lot of time to get there. And so when you start out, you got to have this long-term vision and be aware of how much time it's going to take to reach those aspirations. Um, when we talk aspirations, we're not just talking, you know, an easy goal that can be accomplished in a couple of weeks. It's something that's long-term. It's probably like 18 plus months of work that's going to culminate in accomplishing this thing. And, you know, commit to commitment was one of the things that I argued back and forth with Tim a lot initially, because coaches love to talk about consistency and he didn't want to talk about consistency. It was about committing to commitment. And so the difference for me was, you know, Tim explained consistency. Nobody's hundred percent consistent. So if you talk to guys about being consistent on anything, it's guaranteed they're going to fail at some point pretty early. And, uh, you know, society today, one of the other things we've talked about outside of cert is kind of normalizing failure for guys and realizing failure is just feedback. Um, it doesn't have to be this positive, negative emotion. It's just feedback for um, what you need to do. And so for me, like originally I was talking consistency and Tim was pushing back because there's 100% failure rate. And then psychologically, if you fail at something, that leads to feeling shame, which leads to withdrawal, which leads to not wanting to do it again. So if you are talking to a guy and you're saying, hey, like you need to be more consistent coming in and shooting. Well, each day he doesn't come in and shoot, he's going to feel bad about it because he knows he's not being consistent. And then he's not going to want to do it anymore because it leads to these bad feelings. Whereas committing to commitment is much more of like a North Star and kind of accounts for the fact that there are going to be those bad days. Really, it's about getting back on track and staying focused long term on what your goals are and how you can accomplish them. And, you know, if you miss a day, if you miss a workout, you don't need to feel bad about it but you do need to realize, hey, there's still this North Star. There's this aspiration I'm shooting towards. Um, I got to get back on the right path. So for us, you know, the committing to commitment thing is kind of realizing that, you know, anything that is going to last and, and be really good is going to take a lot of time to develop. Um, and so we got to make sure that we're staying committed to doing that. Right. And uh, 12 to 18 months, that seems like a, a, a long-term thing. But I, I guess when you're recruiting basketball players and you're running a program, uh, it, it can actually be a pretty, uh, it, can, it can almost seem like a short-term thing if you have an idea of where you want your program to be. Like, and people talk about that all the time. Like, where do you want your program to be in a year or two years? That's, that's right within that time frame. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that, that's something that I definitely struggled with my first two years is you so kindly brought up our record. <laughs> I was a little bit impatient probably. And, and wasn't happy necessarily with the results we were getting immediately short-term. But even with that being said, I, I didn't really lose focus of where we wanted the program to go and, you know, was continuing to try to push things in that direction and build towards that and realize that even if we weren't there yet, at least we're on the right path and things were going the right direction. And, you know, th that change was going to come. It was in the, it was, it just took some time to uh, grab hold. Yeah. And I think that leads right into the E part of it, which is, engage process, not results. Um, your players have been spewing almost since day one, the mantra progress, not perfection, progress, not perfection. Uh, and, and, and I think that's, that's a reflection of, of kind of that, that attitude of focusing more on the process and, and not worrying so much about the results. Yeah, for sure. You know, playing and coaching with Coach Hickson up at Amherst College, um, one of the all-time winningest coaches in Division Three basketball, 
just retired uh, last year. But he was always talking about that. You weren't playing the game against the opponent. You were playing it against yourself or against the game of basketball. And so, you know, we had some really successful teams. And there was games where we'd be winning by 15 points at halftime. And he'd go in and he'd rip us because, you know, based on us, based on the other team, we should have been up by more. We were turning the ball over. We were careless, whatever it was. Um, he was always striving towards perfection, but realizing we weren't really going to get there. And then there was also games too, where, you know, we played as hard as we could and the other team just beat us on that day and you can live with that result. And so continually trying to focus on those things that are within your control and make sure you're doing everything you can with your process and your preparation in order to put yourself in a position to be successful is something that we've talked a lot about with our guys. You know, I don't know that teams have just out-talented us, which was one of the things we, we talked to guys a lot about early on, instead of focusing on the, our opponent's good or our opponent's bad is why we won or lost, kind of taking more ownership of it and figuring out how you contributed to that outcome. You know, if you lose the game, like what individually, what could you have done to help put the team in a better position to win? And even when we win, like, what can we do to continue improving? I think our guys get sick of hearing it from me, but I'm constantly trying to find things little ways that we can get better and improve. And like you said, talk about, you know, it's not going to be perfect, but are we making progress? So the progress, not perfection thing really resonated with me. And I think stuck with the guys, just being able to, you know, say, you know what, we're not perfect, but we are going the right direction. Right. I'm sure there's a few things the guys are sick of hearing from you, but that's all, that's all part of being a coach, right? That's for sure. And then, so that's the E, engage process, not results. And then let's talk about the R, respect for knowledge, not talent. Yeah, this is one that I really liked. So, for example, I could look at Landry at Swarthmore, number one team in the country, what he's built there. And I could say, I could either just say that's talent. Landry's just a more talented coach than I am. Or I could look at it and I could say there's a difference in our knowledge base, right? Like he's figured out at that school what type of kid to recruit, what type of system to install, how to coach it, how to deal with his guys. And then for me, the challenge would be if I want to reach that level of achievement that he has, then I got to figure out what's missing in my knowledge base that I can add and improve um, so that we can have that type of success at Muhlenberg. You know, last year in the off season, uh, we really wanted to improve our finishing around the rim. And so for me, it was like, okay, we have our process of how we're working on this. It's not getting us the results we want. How can we change it? Well, if we want to improve our process, then we got to change our knowledge base because that's how you build the process. So we found a random YouTube video that was an NBA coach who gave the clinic in Serbian with English subtitles. But for me, I thought he had really good teaching points and broke it down in a logical way that would be pretty easy to do with our guys. So we stole a lot of those ideas, started teaching them to guys last year. And so to fit it into the CERT model, we improved our knowledge, which led us to build these different finishing progressions, which meant we had a better process. And then the commit to commitment thing, we did it pretty much every day, long term. So for the entire year, the entire season during practice, we were doing it every day. And then at the end of the year, if you go on synergy, which breaks down different stats for basketball, I think we were like 90th percentile in the country for division three, finishing around the rim last year. So by improving our knowledge, we were able to improve our process, which led to better results because we were committed to it long-term. Um, we easily could have just said like, 
hey, we're not good. Those guys are just more talented finishing around the rim. And that would have been a disservice to our guys and, and their capabilities. So especially for us as coaches, I think the knowledge piece is something that we're always trying to work on. And then now, Tim, working with our guys individually, that's something once guys have their aspirations, we're trying to work with them of figuring out like, okay, what knowledge do you need to add so that you can have a good process to get where you want to go? Right. So I guess the moral of the story is if, uh, if you want to improve your knowledge base, just, just look on YouTube for, for Serbian videos, right? You could find anything on the internet. You days. could find anything on the internet. And, and can, can, that, can that knowledge base, because it says respect for knowledge, not talent. Can that, in the sport of basketball, can that increasing the knowledge base overcome for what might be, uh, you know, a deficiency in challenge, in, in talent rather? Yeah, I think the main point is really that, like, just saying someone is talented is kind of shortchanging them, right? Like, LeBron James is talented, but he also invests a million plus dollars a year and is taking care of his body. You know, he's worked on his game. He spends hours watching film. He does a lot of things that other people aren't willing to do. So to just say he's more talented kind of shortchanges it. Obviously, in basketball, there's different elements that are not in your control, you know, size, natural body composition, stuff like that. But to just say it's talent kind of shortchanges people in the process. And so, and it's a little defeatist, right? Like, I can just look at people that are better than me and say, well, they're more talented. I'll never be able to do that. You, you, that never happens because you never see anybody who's better than you, right? I see a lot of people that are better than me, unfortunately. <laughs> a lot of them are coaching in our league. Um, which is a pain but no but like that kind of pushes me as a coach you know being in a league with so many good coaches is like I got to improve my knowledge base so that we can compete with those guys they do a really good job you know both Landry um, and Josh Luffler at Johns Hopkins I've watched they gave a few clinics over the summer and um, were really impressive both sides of the ball with how they teach things how they break things down what their knowledge base is and so be able to see that firsthand has been great for me and something that, you know, we'll, we'll continue to try to work on and improve. Right. And then the T part of the cert is um, trust. Uh, view everything through the lens of trust. Yeah. So this one, you know, we haven't covered as much with our guys yet. So maybe I don't have quite as good of a grasp on it. And again, like you said earlier, Tim Silvestri and the Counseling Center has kind of developed this. So if people have any questions, he'd be the guy to, reach out to but for me it was like kind of you know how I applied to basketball was like we talked about shot selection right if a guy's taking bad shots you can just say oh he's selfish or what's actually going on is there's probably a lack of trust somewhere either he doesn't trust his teammates he doesn't trust the coaches he doesn't trust the play that was drawn up he doesn't whatever the reason is it's probably a lack of trust where if you can focus on building that trust um, then the performance is going to improve. Um, we've also talked about it in the realm of as you're committing the commitment and you're on this journey towards your aspiration, testing yourself along the way and doing things that are harder than what you're actually going to have to do to kind of build trust with yourself that you're even capable of accomplishing this thing, right? If I want to shoot 45% from three in the game, well, then in practice, I can't just kind of to steal a movie quote from later, lollygag around the court and shoot the ball at 50% and think that I'm going to do it in the game versus if I run a bunch of sprints and then I'm still able to shoot 45%. Well, then when I get in the game and it's the end of the game and I'm tired, 
I can, I have that trust in myself that I've done this before. I've worked on it. I'm capable of doing this. You know, a lot of times end of game situations as a coach, you know, you're trying to remind your players to trust themselves that you've worked on these things in practice before you've done them. You've already accomplished them. You're going to do it again. You got to trust yourself. Um, so that's kind of how we've used trust so far. And again, like that may change moving forward as we get more in depth with working with Tim and his team on the model. Yeah. In terms of trust, the, the team uh, last year when it was so successful had some uh, just incredible sequences. I, I'm thinking about a few in the Moravian game, uh, one in the Del Val game where the ball was passed around the court and any number of players could have taken an open shot and, and a shot that they're probably capable of making. Uh, and, and that their teammates would trust them to take, but instead they chose, you know, either the pump fake and, and get a defender out of position and pass it to a teammate. And it was just boom, 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 boom. The pass, the ball got passed, you know, for everyone on the team touched it and it was just really smooth. And, and the team wound up getting, uh, you know, a very, very high percentage shot over out of that. And I, I, I think that shows a lot of trust, you know, obviously anybody who's playing college basketball is, uh, you know, is, is capable of making, making shots, but just trusting that, Hey, maybe we, I can get a better shot for one of my teammates. I, I, I think that was, those are some good illustrations of that. Yeah. And like one way to build that up in practice, when we talk about shot selection, obviously we have whatever shots we value, but also when guys take a shot, we'll just ask them, was that the best shot that we can get? So not, was that a good or bad shot for you? was that the best shot we can get collectively as a team and kind of getting guys to reframe it a little bit of, you know, for me individually, I could have shots that are good for me that are not good for the team. The really good teams are the ones where I realize that and I don't shoot those ones. I only shoot the ones that are good for the team and are best for what we need to get done. Um, and so, you know, indirectly, a lot of times, a lot of the different stuff we do in practice is focused on doing things such as uh, building trust or focusing on process, not the results. You know, we just bought this new shooting system, the NOAA shooting system, which gives feedback on the arc of your shot, the depth of it, and whether you miss right or left. Um, and really, it's all process, right? Like, it's not about as much about make or miss. With our two guys that were on campus, we had them using it. And they had to make two in a row with their arc in a certain range because that's the ideal process for their shot. So again, it was like, okay, they were getting frustrated because they're making a lot of shots, but the process was slightly off. So we had them keep going until they got the process piece of it right. And then trusting that long-term, if they commit to doing this and shooting in the right range, that their shooting percentages are going to go up as long as they stay committed to doing it. Right. Right. And, and, and ultimately, when you see like those types of sequences in games where everybody's getting involved and, and is trusting each other and, and working the ball around for the best shot the team can get, it looked like an awful lot of fun for those guys, for everyone on the court. It looked like it was it was, you know, just just a, a heck of a lot of fun to play uh, on a team like that, whether it was you yourself getting the basket at the end or, or one of your teammates. For sure. So that's the uh, CERT, the CERT model that you've been using with your team. And, and I know in terms of other things that, that you do to, with your team to, to motivate your players, um, and this is something that you, you brought from, from Coach Hickson at, at Amherst, is, uh, is movie quotes. 
uh, and and little sayings and, and and phrases that that you can use. Talk about some some of your maybe your favorite movie quotes or some that that Coach Hickson used with you when when you were a player. You know that that you've used with your team and and, and what they mean. I probably haven't used the movie quotes as much as he did. He was a movie buff. He also had an incredible memory for like limericks and funny poems and always had something ready to go. A couple of the ones that stood out though, that were, you know, on repeat, I actually texted a a bunch of the former assistants that have worked for him and asked what they thought and got their input also. But one of them was from the movie Bull Durham. There's a scene in the locker room where he starts talking about lollygagging. I mean, kind of the team is not very successful. They've got a bad record and he starts ripping into the players kind of says they lollygag the ball around the infield. They lollygag down to first. They lollygag in and out of the dugout and kind of asks the assistant, you know, what does that make these guys? Uh, lollygaggers. Um, and then goes on that their record's like, I don't know, eight and 16 or something like that. And it's a miracle that they've even done that. Point being like he's, Coach Hickson would use it and show it to guys sometimes when they weren't really uh, working hard in practice. Or he always used to talk about when guys were coming in to get extra work, are you shooting around or are you getting better? A lot of guys come in and like shoot around. They're not really getting anything done. They'll be in the gym for two hours. They're not sweating. So the lollygag movie scene kind of spoke to that a little bit. At least that was how I interpreted it. The other one, he, he loved the movie Tin Cup. So there's a scene where the guy, I think his name's Roy, is this like amateur who's kind of brash, super talented, but can't get out of his own way. And then there's a pro, I forget the guy's name. And Roy challenges him to basically a macho contest. It's a thousand dollars versus Roy's car, I think it is, um, for to see who can hit uh, a club the furthest. Um, so I think he hits a seven iron and it's he hits it like 200 something yards. And then the pro gets up and Roy's kind of talking trash, whatever, and asks him, the pro has a suit coat or a jacket on, and Roy kind of asks him, like, aren't you going to take that off? And he's like, no, I don't need to. This is kind of mental training for what's coming up, what it's like to be in the pros. And so the contest was who could hit the golf ball farther. Um, So the pro, instead of hitting it out towards the driving range, kind of turns, and there's a long road that's right by this patio area where they're hitting from. And he just turns and easily hits the ball and it just bounces all the way down the road um, <laughs> on the pavement. So kind of a, a little entertaining, but also kind of like the work smarter, not harder type of thing where there's a lot of different ways to get things done. And a lot of times the guys that are the most vocal, the most brash are missing something that, again, this would be if you're going to apply it to cert the pro had a better knowledge base of if I just hit the ball softly down the road, it'll bounce on the pavement and it'll keep going further. And then um, this amateur that lacks that knowledge thinks, oh, I'll just hit it as far as I can. I'm more talented. Um, And again, in this one, you'd respect the guy that had the knowledge, not the talent. Last one I had thought of was Lion King, um, which is an all time great movie. Um, Rafiki, one of the best characters. But he's kind of talking to Simba after Simba had gone away after his dad had died. Kind of talks through not only Simba needing to know who he is, but also his dad living on in him. And and then at the end, Rafiki kind of wraps him on the head with his stick. 
And someone's like, ow, that hurt. And Rafiki's like, but it doesn't matter. It's in the past. And basically the, the point of the lesson was the past is the past. And then you've got two options once it's done. You can either uh, learn from it or you can run from it um, and try to avoid it. And so, again, kind of focusing on, you know, when something happens, what's your reaction going to be? Is that going to be a lesson you learned when you have a failure along the way? Is that going to be a lesson where you stay committed and you stay on the path? Or is it going to be something that you run and hide from and give up and you're no longer working towards that? So those are kind of the, the three biggest ones that I think stuck out. Just for the record, do you ever wrap your players on the head with a stick? I do not. Uh, very glad to hear I'd that. I'd like to at times, but I have not done it. That, that's great to hear. And then uh, just a natural segue from talking about movie quotes to talking about your movie career. Uh, very, very little known fact, maybe by some people, you are you are in IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, for your role in Delivery Man. Talk about how that all came about and, and, and what that was like. Yeah, it was a great opportunity of being right place, right time. So when I was in graduate school at University of Massachusetts, Amherst, um, I was studying sport management and I was interning for the Knicks in their uh, field marketing and fan development department, kind of putting on camps, being 6'10". At that time, Steve Novak was the big, one of the big players for the Knicks who was 6'10", kind of looked like me a little bit, um, or I looked like him, I should say, probably. Um, so kids would ask if I was Steve Novak and I would have to say no. And then they asked who I was and I was like, I'm not anybody. I'm just a basketball coach. <laughs> uh, played division three and assistant coach, which was disappointing. But we had a group of us that used to play that worked in the office that would play pickup sometimes. And, you know, after my playing career, I developed my shots. So kind of got they started jokingly calling me Steve Novak when we played <laughs> And then when I went back to Amherst, I was working as an assistant, hadn't thought of it. And my former boss sent me an email and said that I had to audition for this part. They were helping doing a casting call for a Vince Vaughn movie. The description was tall, looks like Steve Novak, knows how to play basketball, basically. <laughs> and so I ended up applying for the role. I went down, I interviewed, um, it was me and two other guys. We were kind of there. The director's working with Vince Vaughn in this random like Equinox gym or something like that. I had driven from Amherst to New York City, so probably three and a half, four hours, go to the gym. Uh, they stop whatever they're doing. The director comes over. We had like five or 10 minutes, no warm up, throw your shoes on, go through some basketball drills. Luckily, one of the guys was not very good at basketball. And then the other guy, wasn't very tall and didn't really fit the description. So I ended up getting the role. And when I got it, one of the uh, stipulations was they had reserved Madison Square Garden at, during the day to film some stuff. And then at halftime of a Knicks-Wizards game um, with a live audience, they were going to film. So that date was kind of set in stone. And that was the same day. I think we were supposed to play Westfield State maybe up at Amherst. We had a game. And so originally I wasn't going to, I was going to, coach the game and when I talked to coach Hickson about it um, as a young assistant not making a lot of money I uh, actually didn't understand the terms of my contract but I thought I was going to make about a month's rent um, for doing it and when I asked coach Hickson what he thought about it 
with the conflict with the game and stuff, he told me that if I didn't do it, he was going to try to do it. <laughs> so I needed to go do it. So is, is he six foot ten? He's not. Okay. Probably would not have done as good a job. So went down, uh, ended up having a much bigger role than I thought it was going to be. That actually has been really nice. So we did three or four days of filming, which was really cool. I had a scene where it was me and Vince Vaughn together, played the role of Andrew Johansson, one of his kids who's a professional basketball player for the Knicks. And then afterwards, after the movie had come out, my mom, I was working out in Santa Cruz in California and my mom had just come to visit and she had flown home and she called me at like 5.30 or 6 in the morning and I was kind of freaked out because she had just been on the West Coast. She knew about the time difference. Something important must have happened if she was calling me at that time. But I picked up the phone and was like, what's going on? And she goes, did you read your contract? Do you get residuals from the movie? And I was like, I don't know. I kind of just signed it. I thought it'd be cool to be in the movie. And she was like, well, you do. There's a pretty sizable check here and it breaks down. Like this is from in theaters. This is from streaming. This is from whatever. Um, so I've been pretty fortunate. I think doing that movie, the checks have always been pretty timely as a division three assistant, not making a lot of money. Um, there's definitely been a few times where like my car's broken down or, or some expenses come up that I wasn't really sure how I was going to make it work. And then one of these checks, royalty checks from the movie um, would show up and kind of allowed me to continue on the path and end up at Muhlenberg. Um, so pretty grateful for that. Yeah, that, 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 that's a great story. It must have been a lot of fun to do that, you know, to be part of a movie and, and, and you know, at least just to see what, what it's like to, to shoot a movie. Yeah, it was awesome. I understand why movies cost so much money to make now, uh, <laughs> for one. And then, too, it was interesting. So the, the, the first day we were shooting, I showed up and, yeah, I forget what the term is, on movie sets, the people that, like, walk people around. But they're like, we'll show you to your trailer. And I was like, what? like a changing room so I put on the uniform and this person literally was with me the entire day like do you need anything kept asking these questions and I like didn't understand I thought I was just an extra in the movie but then we got to filming Madison Square Garden was empty they had me and a bunch of other actors on the court doing basketball stuff um, and then it was like Vince Vaughn and other actors up in the stands so we'd kind of alternate we had to be quiet while they were filming and then vice versa and it was interesting for me. There's so many people there that they were like serious actors. And they're like, how'd you get this role? I was like, uh, I don't know. I'm not an actor. I'm a basketball coach. Um, so they were kind of upset. And then uh, the last day of filming was interesting too. Um, so part of the movie, they like CGI'd. Part of it's me on the court doing stuff. And part of it's actually Steve Novak with my face CGI'd on it. So the last day was literally the last day of filming for the movie. And I was the only actor that was still there. It was like all this cast and crew, they've been working like 18 hour days for six months and can't wait to be done. And they're going to wait on me to do some acting, which was kind of stressful because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, <laughs> but when I showed up, they're like, okay, well, uh, we'll just put you in Vince's room. He's done. You can change in there. So I go in Vince Vaughn's changing room and change and go back out and then I was like they did a bunch of different stuff I had to sit perfectly still and they took a camera and went you know 360 view of my head had me sit in a chair with like three different cameras on me the directions were that I was supposed to act 
like I would if I was playing basketball, but not move my head, which didn't make any sense to me because basketball, you're constantly moving your head, looking around, seeing what to do. So it was interesting to have like, we'd, we'd film it, get some feedback, try to change it a little bit. All these people just waiting on me to do some acting, even though I had no acting experience, no clue what I was doing, but great experience overall. Yeah, so uh, just again, the, the name of the movie is, is Delivery Man. Is, is it available on Netflix? Uh, do you know? Uh, I'm not sure. Okay, well, well, try to watch it because, you know, Coach Hopkins gets residuals every time it's watched. So if you want to uh, contribute to the uh, Coach Hopkins Flat Tire Fund, uh, just <laughs> make, make sure to watch uh, to stream Delivery Man uh, with Vince Vaughn. Um, you, you know, I, I was thinking as you were talking, you know, n- no Academy Award nomination for, for Best Supporting Actor, huh? Not yet. Hopefully, I I, I I think that's a matter of of uh, it's not talent. I think you just need to increase your knowledge base. And then, uh, yeah, I had no knowledge of what I was doing. So. Yeah, then maybe the uh, the award nominations will come will start coming in. But that's a that that's a great story and and just kind of a unique experience. Like you said, you kind of lucked into, but um, great experience. Yeah, for sure. All right, Kevin, we're uh, we're winding down here, and we like to end all of our episodes with some getting to know you type questions and. One of the questions we usually ask is if what is something about you people might not know, but I think we just covered that in length about your role in, in Delivery Man. Um, so here are some other questions. If you weren't a basketball coach, what would you be doing? Recounting that story makes me wish that I'd taken acting a little more seriously, maybe. Uh, <laughs> some of the residual checks, maybe acting. Well, I mean, there's a little bit of acting in being a basketball coach, right? If you tell someone, you tell someone they're doing a good job when you don't really believe it because it's just what they need to hear. There's a little little acting involved in there, right? Yeah, we try to stay away from the uh, empty compliments, but for sure, at least with referees, right. <laughs> a lot of acting going on. Yes, uh, yes. Who inspires you to be better? Great question, first of all. Uh, made me pause and think. My answer would probably be my mom. So my dad passed away when I was 15 from uh, cancer and she raised three kids, put all of us through college, helped me and my sister get through grad school, has always been supportive of us. Not really sure how she was able to make it work raising three kids on her own, but she's definitely one that would be an inspiration for me. All right. And then last question, if you could sit down for a meal with any person living or past, who would it be? Related to the last answer, I think my dad would probably be the person. He was a big role model for me early on. Always coached us playing youth sports. Was a big advocate for people doing things the right way and wasn't afraid of um, confrontation with people if they were doing things that didn't really align with his values and was really good at you know, making conversation with anybody. Um, so I think if I had a chance, it would probably be him that I would want to sit down and talk to and kind of see what he thinks about where I'm at in life right now. All right. So where you are is a very successful, uh, coming off a very successful year with, with Muhlenberg basketball. Of course, we don't know what's in store for, for this coming year or, or if there there will be a season, but um, you know, certainly uh, you have the Muhlenberg program uh, on the right track and uh, thanks for taking uh few minutes to sit down and, and talk with the Muhlenberg Mules podcast. Well, I appreciate you guys having me. One thing I would say is um, 
when I was hired, I've been very intentional to never say my program or anything like that. I think the program belongs to the players and the guys that are in it. So very intentional about always saying our program, we have it on the right track. So to kind of appreciate the compliment from you, but really, you know, I've kind of tried to share my knowledge with the guys, but the work has been done by them. They're the ones that have changed where the program was at, where it is currently, and they'll be the ones that are in charge of where the program goes in the future. Again, you know, my role is to kind of facilitate them in that process on their journey and hopefully be able to share some knowledge with them that they can apply. But at the end of the day, um, they're the guys that are putting in the work to improve individually. They're the guys out on the court playing during the game. Um, And so for me, I really think the program belongs to them. It bothers me when coaches say me, my program, I did this, et cetera. I don't think that's how it works. None of us are out there making shots. We're not out there blocking shots. We're not doing any of that. You know, hopefully we're helping put guys in a good position to be able to do those things. Um, But like I said, at the end of the day, this is their program. Whatever we accomplish is going to be because of those guys. All right. Well said. Thank you again, Coach Hopkins. The Muhlenberg Mules podcast is a production of the Muhlenberg Office of Athletic Communications with Joe Widener, Zoe Keim, and Marty the Mule. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email at mulespodcast at muhlenberg.edu or call our pod line at 484-664-4001 and leave a message. We will answer questions in future episodes. The Muhlenberg Mules podcast is available on Apple and Spotify and wherever you get your podcast. Please rate and review us and recommend us to your friends. For the latest in Muhlenberg College Athletics, please follow us on social media at M-U-H-L underscore S-P-O-R-T-S. Until next week, Go Mules! Go Mules.